Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. Where has modernising the royal family taken Britain's monarchy and where can it go next? In this podcast, the historian of monarchs and monarchy, David Starkey, talks to the critic's deputy editor, Graeme Stewart, about the Crown's delicate balance between reform, revolution and sustaining a useful role. Professor Starkey, there is a lot of discussion at the moment reflecting on the legacy of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, that he modernised the royal family. In your article for the May edition of The Critic, you pinpoint King George V as perhaps the great moderniser of the House of Windsor. Uh, Why so? Quite simply, he invents it. Uh, The name the House of Windsor is a a novel coinage. Uh, The invention, of course, is a product of terror at failure and oblivion. That's the best mother of invention. They thought they were going to go the way of Russia. The year it's done is 1917. It's the fate of his cousin, um, uh, Tsar Nicholas, Nicky, as, as, as they, they were deeply intimate. They look like each other. They're naval men. The Tsar writes perfect English. Uh, they're first cousins. And you can tell from George's diary, A, the depths of his sorrow. I am in despair. He's not a man who uses emotional words lightly, but also the fear, I am going to go the same way. And what you get in 1917, and we've carefully obliterated this. We talk about a thousand-year monarchy. We talk about the Norman Conquest. To all intents and purposes, we have a new monarchy starting in 1917. So whereas you can present this picture of Philip coming in in 47, uh, becoming uh, a consort uh, um, uh, in 52, inheriting this kind of nearly thousand-year institution, all moth-eaten and tatty and decayed. In fact, it is the most modern of monarchies. It is deliberately transformed for mass mass democracy and mass communication, all in 1917. First thing you've got to do, of course, well, you're sort of German. Are you Guelph? Are you Saxe-Coburg-Gut? And, of course, you're fighting the Germans. What makes it even worse is the, uh, I'm afraid, uh, the Russian Kaiser, uh, the, 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 the German Kaiser is your first cousin. He had been the prince. We forget just how close the ties were. The Kaiser was the principal mourner at Victoria's funeral. He's on one side of her deathbed. He's the eldest grandson. You just um, so you you have this extraordinary process of distancing from your Germanness, and you do it by what effectively amounts to market testing for a new name. Um, And it's also very interesting, and in contrast with the present, the seriousness of the political involvement. You have a really very weighty private secretary, Lord Stanford, but every former prime minister, interestingly enough, with the exception of the only Tory, Balfour, who's not remotely interested, all the liberal ones, Rosebery, Asquith, whatever, seriously involved in how do we... In the same way, Gladstone, however much Victoria hated him, is a passionate monarchist. How do we adjust this thing? 
And so you change the name, this wonderful you know, mixture of uh, Shakespeare, St. George, and soft soap of Windsor. You, you, you come up with that. But then you do something else, and this seems to be very much George V and Queen Mary themselves. They then say, well, actually, you can't just change the name. We have had German dynastic marriage customs. Is it why? You know, the royal family, uh, it's German going back, to the, uh, go, uh, go, going back to the Hanoverian succession in the early 17th century. But why does it, sorry, the early 18th century, but why does it seem to remain German? Well, it's a bit like some Indian families in Britain now. You always marry back home. You marry a first or second or third cousin back home uh, because if you're a German family, uh, a German uh, royal or princely family, you have got to avoid what's called dérogence. You've always got to marry royal. Um, and what they do is say, we're going to abolish that. They specify their children can and effectively should marry English men and English women. So you change a German dynasty into an English family. Uh, and you can then see how all sorts of royal ceremonies transform from that point. We all think what a royal marriage looks like, or something big and pompous in Westminster Abbey. It wasn't like that before. There were private, semi-private occasions in the Chapel Royal uh, in, in, in St James's. And what happens, it's following 1917, the first of these new style royal marriages to an Englishman uh, is Princess Mary, the, 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 uh, the eldest daughter, the Princess Royal, uh, to, to Viscount Lassels. And do you know what she's called? The people's princess, the people's wedding. And so not only do you do that, you sort of turn it into an English family, you then do something equally remarkable. You completely reinvent the honour system, which had been, well, it had been what we saw for the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. Do you remember, offered up on the altar, just like the emblems of medieval knighthood, was every single damn order of chivalry you can think of, to use the words I really must avoid using, um, uh, so many damn orders of chivalry, uh, from, from the garter to the order of the elephant to uh, the sublime son of Japan or whatever it was, um, uh, the, uh, the order of the British Empire. The order of the British Empire was invented exactly at this moment, in 1917, as a direct imitation of the Légion d'honneur. And it's designed for mass membership. All those other orders, the garter, the thistle, whatever, tiny numbers. Mm. And they're only high aristocrats, or they were only high aristocrats and fellow royals. The, the order of the British Empire is intended for hundreds and thousands. You publish within two years investiture lists of 2,000 people a time. And it's designed to reflect the whole order of society. Now, we think you know, having a knight round cross at the top and a British Empire medal at the bottom of it is terribly classist. Nobody of the rank of BEM had ever got anything before. It's revolutionary. And it's, it is seen, uh, the, and, and, and Again, as I featured in, in the article in, 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 in the May issue, that <coughs> wonderful photograph, the first investiture of this new order is the most modern, the most demotic, the most extravagantly democratic event in the history of the 20th century monarchy. You have a royal investiture in Ibrox Park football stadium. 
And the king isn't wearing robes, he's not wearing dress uniform, he's in rough khaki, and he's driven, driven in a, this is not a custom-built Land Rover, but an ordinary staff car. He is driven round the perimeter to bring him proximate to the people. And the, 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 the great cheers are for a munitions worker. Um, and you can see from her, you know, it's very nice that you chose a profile photograph. She was very Edwardian with a very, very tight belt and, <laughs> and the British Empire medal with a woman is pinned upon the breast. And the king was seen to spend perhaps an unnecessarily long time attaching the vast cheers. And then the great moment of pathos when a terribly injured soldier who insisted on having his medal, but he couldn't walk and he couldn't stand. And he's carried in. And, you know, again, it's extraordinary, but this mass emotion, there's, there's well over 100,000 people there. This is democratic monarchy. And so there wasn't actually all that much for the Duke of Edinburgh to do. Mm. There, was, there was a bit of fiddling around with television, but everybody sort of makes this tremendous fuss about the importance of the uh, coronation being televised. Have, have you ever listened to the recording, because there is a recording, of the coronation service of the Queen and Richard Dimbleby's commentary. Mm. Have you? I have, yes. yes. What does the commentary sound like? Uh, well, it sounds extraordinarily plummy, even though... though um... Even for Dimbleby, yes. it's plummy. Even for, <laughs> even for Dimbleby, it's plummy, yes. yes. <laughs> but, but the tone is, is just... It's, it's very reverential, but actually doesn't say anything very interesting. Of course not, because what it is, if you listen to it carefully, Dimbleby is like the verses and responses in an old-fashioned C of E service. This is sycophancy at a level we cannot conceive. Again, the notion that the monarchy needed modernising in 52-53 completely forgets that the monarchy was popular beyond any conception or belief. Criticism of the monarchy was absolutely impossible until the early 1970s. That, that Again, it's a product of this utter transformation of the monarchy in 1917 right through the 20s. The British monarchy becomes English Shinto. It becomes a national religion. Uh, the monarchy invents Everybody goes on about, oh, isn't it Badgett who creates the monarchy? It's only Badgett who creates the monarchy because George V, simple-minded chap that he is, is taught that Badgett is what the English monarchy is. So it's a really very interesting case of backward invention. Um, and there's that wonderful phrase in Badgett, the, the monarch is head of our morality. You know, tell, tell, tell that to Edward VII. Um, but, but George V consciously makes himself that. And the family monarchy is used, deliberately deployed by the combination of the king and particularly Archbishop Cosmo Gordon Lang to moralise England. And with the BBC coming in as the great moralizer under Reith, there's, you, 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 you get a kind of, it becomes a, a, a triad, a new trinity of a national church of monarchy, Church of England and BBC propagating the notion of the British family British values and the monarchy and the royal family as the embodiment as both a family unit and as a concept of that. 
And the Queen and Prince Philip are seen as this wonderful embodiment of this. And of course, the fact that Edward VIII and Mrs. Simpson weren't is why they're expelled into the outer darkness of a luxurious life on the, in the suburbs of Paris. Um, uh, but this new couple come in, and right through the 60s, I mean, despite all the tensions of the 60s, you can barely say a word when, when uh, uh, John Grigg, Lord Altrincham, um, uh, or whoever, or Malcolm Muggeridge too, they're excoriated. Mm. The actual talk talk about cancellation being a modern phenomenon. Poor old John Grigg gets cancelled. There's even a campaign to remove his title of Lord Altrincham. You know, yes, the, the poor place says you know, we can't have this man. So the monarchy is at a level for what it, what it is over fifty years of absolute untouchability. So the notion of you know, television as some form of modern scrutiny and all the rest is totally not true. The media function in, uh, and particularly the BBC, particularly the CLE, you know, the phrase about the, uh, uh, the, the, the Church of England being the Tory party at prayer, well, it's not so much Tory party, but it's a view of collegiate Englishness, British, very, but of course a Britishness which is very, very definitely English. Um, and um, that's what it is. And I think against that, I mean, can we be blunt? And I, this is not speaking ill of the dead. And the, Philip was always about gestures. Um, uh, I think, yeah, actually, it was in, it was in conversation with, with, with the editor. He said that uh, Philip was a little bit like um, um, uh, a 1950s um, uh, Dandare rocket. You know? um, and so these are gestures. And I think it's very striking that when you look at whom he chose to memorialise, both his mother and more particularly himself, you know, you don't choose Gile Brandreth if you've actually got something fundamental to say. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mere anecdotage. Mm -hmm. Well done. Charming, witty, funny. In the uh, popular narrative that is developing about Prince Philip, uh, the you know, it's made out that he introduced the royal family to the scrutiny of television. He did, and, uh, and know, bitterly regret, bitter, bitterly, bitterly regretted it. Mm -hmm. And that documentary has never been rebroadcast, mm -hmm. and it's forbidden. It's absolutely verboten, because of course, um, the media that that Philip was used to. And what he thought he was doing was simply uh, getting, was getting a device that would broadcast the message. Mm. But then, of course, um, it then turns against, and as the royal family itself ceases to be able to, from Princess Margaret onwards, ceases to be able to embody that message of rigorous morality. Again, and it's, it was brutal. And it was particularly brutal to the members of the royal family. And there's the phrase that, that I always quote, I mean, if you think royal weddings that we might remember, uh, like the, uh, we'll ignore the gospel choir, but, but if, you th if, you think of the, uh, if you think of the marriage of the prince um, and princess of Wales, Charles and Diana, a brilliantly intelligent Archbishop Rumsey, but burbling away about a fairy tale wedding and well, what happened to that. But what were uh, Queen Elizabeth's parents told? What were 
was then Prince Albert, um, and uh, uh, the late George VI and Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bozlaya. What were they told? Cosmo Gordon Lang, in full rhetorical flow, you cannot resolve that your marriage will be happy. You can and will resolve that it should be noble. You know, you may hate each other's guts, darling, but you will not divorce. And it was that, it was... And of course, what you then get is, against that, you get the demand for happiness for personal satisfaction, you get the beginning of the transformation of public and private morality. And also what we forget is just how extraordinary divorce was before the 1960s. And what we forget too is one of the reasons it was so extraordinary was that Cosmo Gordon Lang uses the royal family as a kind of dam to hold up against divorce. I mean, I remember my dear mother and this is a woman born in 1907, there were the hierarchy of absolutely impossible things. Irish, Catholic, but divorce was the... No, no, no. Mm. But, of course, once that dam breaks, the media also, of course, turn themselves you've, you know, from, from an agency of propagation into an agency of inquisition and intrusion. And you can see very clearly... Philip is desperate to stop riding that tiger. Mm -hmm. The ones who enter into the compact with the devil, with the media, are the oppositionists, people like Diana. Um, and, uh, and she, and she, she may say, I'm as thick as two short planks, she turns out to be an absolute mistress of riding the tiger. But of course, it, it equally destroys her. I mean, she, she completely refuses to acknowledge the point that the Queen has always made, I am not an actress, I am not a celebrity. She plays the game of celebrity, and the game of celebrity is you bear your soul, and the more sordid bits of your soul. Did Philip bear his soul? I mean, he wrote not 14 books. Never. And... You never got any... I'm not sure there was a soul. Um, or if there was, it was something that I was barely aware of, this strange eco-religiosity. Mm -hmm. um, but no, of course not. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but again, what, what, what that generation, I mean, if you've been through Gordonstoun, what, what was it, Colditz in Kilts, as his son said, if you've been through that, uh, which, which in some ways is the absolute quintessence of the public school, uh, the one thing it does is teach you to conform or to, to become an absolute rebel. Mm. And of course, Philip was a triumphant success. He was naturally athletic, good-looking, dominant, all of those things. Um, and, and it leads you, I think, into a life in which you fit very easily into institutions. Um, I mean, both the Queen and Prince Philip are people who never have felt the need this is not a criticism. It's a particular kind of personality. They're the sort of people who are good, clubby people. You know, do well at school, do you know, get somewhere in the city, a senior partners in this, that, and another, receive long adulatory obituaries, and are completely forgotten. I mean, but that's what they are. It's why they've been so good at what they do. And thank heavens, William and Kate look to be very much of a similar type. Mm. 
the, uh, Philip's funeral was interesting. Obviously, it was conducted in a different way because of, of COVID. But uh, beyond that, what really struck me, uh, and it's something you've already mentioned, was the focus on um, Philip's uh, regimental and, and, and other military uh, um, roles, but also the, the various orders, you know, the, the importance of the garter. The word you're grouping for is chivalry. Chivalry Which is links, the word. Links chivalry of, yes. is, is the word. Um, it obviously meant a lot to Philip. It's not clear to me how much it means to some members of the royal family now, and, and it's, it's even less clear to me whether chivalry uh, has any purchase with the wider public. How is that either forcing the royal family to readapt itself in view of that, or is, is there something the royal family can do to uh, give, give its subjects a, a better sense of the importance of chivalry? Well, if only they would. I mean, if you, if you, you, you put your finger very precisely on it. If you think of the bits of that service, which was staggeringly successful, um, it was the funeral march. Uh, the Beethoven march to with the muffled drum, uh, the uh, extraordinarily difficult tasks of moving that ponderous coffin, uh, the in some ways rather absurd but rather touching Land Rover and whatever that was magnificent. Um, the service itself much more confused, and what I think was so sad was that there was no opportunity to use that service to put the Duke's life and all his multitude of different interests into a unifying structure. Because I think there is, and I think it is this word chivalry, to use a really old-fashioned term, I think the Duke of Edinburgh saw himself as a knight. He saw himself as a perfect gentleman, which is not simply an English gentleman, but it's an international phenomenon. It's about being a very confident man, it's about being very good at fighting games and all the rest of it and military, but subordinating those to a higher notion of discipline, of service, a particular attitude of politeness to women. The Duke, in other aspects of chivalry, that is to say, courtesy to all, might have been occasionally a little bit deficient, but let's draw a veil over all of that. And, and Things like the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which now we just tend to see as Bear Grylls stuff, mm -hmm. you know, just coming up with action. I mean, we've degenerated the notion of, mm -hmm. of the knight into action man, mm -hmm. which is awful and disastrous. Um, but what the Duke was trying to do, I think, in the uh, Duke of Edinburgh scheme was to democratise and broaden that idea. And... If you look at the funeral, that's what it was about. Because, again, completely unexplained to people, and why should they know, the Garter, the, the St George's Chapel, named after St George, the knight who is the patron saint of England. Why is it there? Because it is the, chap it is the chapel of the Order of the Garter, which is the senior European order of chivalry. And all those banners of the Knights of the Garter, and those are the stalls for the Knights of the Garter. And if you look at what Philip did, offering up those various orders of all European, indeed Japan and, mm. and Emirates and whatever, all there, he saw this as an international phenomenon, as a way in which 
the rawness and brutality of masculinity can be made to serve a broader purpose and connected as true knighthood was with vows to God. It was what a layman should, layman, you know, wants to use his penis and have children uh, and women, what he should be doing. And of course, it's one of the things that is most desperately necessary now, which is to find a proper function for conventional heterosexual masculinity. Um, but of course, it's now in a language which is hopelessly remote, high-flown, distant, and made more distant with the overlay of 19th century ceremony and flummery and stars and sashes and that is there anything more remote from a proper view of masculinity than the fact that you go around wearing decorations <laughs> turning yourself into a human christmas tree but that should be that should have been explained mm. and what you're put doing when you put them on the altar and i'm an atheist of course mm. is offering them up to god and the, again, there were the special prayers for a knight of the garter uttered by the Dean of Windsor, who is himself the registrar of the Order of the Garter. Uh, and the final moment, which was, of course, both moving and utterly absurd. Thomas Woodcock is a great herald, but he does not look at his best in tight black tights. Um, uh, and nor did he do it as I think one should. What that is taking you right back to the medieval monarchy that great proclamation of title. And it should have been Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, rolling Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merioneth, Baron of Greenwich, member of Her Majesty's Most you know, Honourable Privy Council, you know, and all the rest of those titles. And, 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 but it's that moment at which the earthly is stripped off. And the earthly grandeur, and you become a Christian soul. Now, there was an archbishop there, there was a dean there. Why did nobody say any of this? Why is it just assumed that people know it? And instead we had Prattle from Giles and Penny and Ingrid and all the rest of them uh, about funny little details. Mm. Appalling. I mean, Hugh Edwards was a disgrace. It was words, 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 until, and it was even less informative than, well, infinitely less informative than Richard Dimbleby uh, in 53. Um, but if those there at the heart of the service can't explain, if any of this still has meaning, it's got to be explained. Otherwise, it just looked like playing card flummery. Mm. Um, and my guess is that the monarchy will not die of revolution. It will not die of popular contempt. It will simply die because neither the people nor the younger members of the royal family actually know what they're doing or why they're doing it. But this comes, doesn't it, to an interesting point, which is, you talk about the, the ignorance or, or lack of interest in uh, chivalry mm. and the, the, the flummery and, and the orders that, that go with it. But if that is the, the modern world, then the, the monarchy has to adapt to the modern world, as George V did in, from 1917. And... Um, if, if these things no longer have purchase with the wider public, then... You have to do something then, about then maybe it. That, you know, that, that, that's something that, that dies with Philip and, 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 and um, the current Queen, and the next generation will, 
will reimagine the monarchy again in a different well, guise. Would, sub- would that be such a bad thing? No, not remotely. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. That's what they should be doing. But you see, I believe passionately that, that the idea of knighthood or whatever, as I've just said to you, it has an obvious and direct purchase. Mm. One of the great problems is what do we do with boys? You know, everybody knows, particularly the poor white boy, mm. that this is one of the great issues. And... You need to re You need to get the thing out of the hands of people like Bear Grylls and whatever. You need to have. You 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 need to get away from the kind of pumping iron. Oh, pumping iron is quite fun, but I mean, you, you need to pull it back from that mm. into that proper, wider social. Dare one use spiritual sense, and it's a great. It is one of the great tragedies of what's happened to poor Harry. He would have been exactly the kind of person who could have acted as a vehicle for some of that. You see, again, what I think is interesting is, is that these notions are clearly getting through to Prince Charles, and I think to Prince William. Um, uh, the, they are now looking at the whole question of royal patronages. Mm. Because, again, you've got to ask, what is the point of there being patrons of 500 organisations, completely, effectively chosen at random? Mm. And this again takes you into what is monarchy there for? Mm-hmm. What is it actually supposed to be doing? And th- one of the, the central things is, is, is embodying historic continuity in the heart of the Constitution and all the rest of it. But we've lost that too. That the, uh, the, the Queen's role at the state opening of Parliament is so manifestly absurd I'm afraid, looks increasingly absurd. This old lady, uh, rather improbably dressed in in an evening gown on a cold eleven o'clock on, <laughs> on a November morning, <laughs> with a pair of spectacles and a rather bizarre crown perched on top of it, <laughs> wearing the most, reading the most boring, badly reading the most boring speech on God's earth. And but it was conceived of, and it was deliberately reinstituted to say this is a parliamentary monarchy, mm. and that the monarchy is at the heart of the political process. And what is really striking, of course, is that a king like George V was at the heart of the political process. When it actually came to the national government, 29, mm. the king was at the heart of the negotiations. Mm. The king is at the heart, although he's actually badly manipulated, of the negotiations over the Parliament Act, um, he, uh, 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 in the same way again, also, in some ways, bad rather than good. George VI is at the heart of the whole argument over appeasement. Mm. I mean, do you know what, um, you're interested in modern history, you, you will know this. Do you know what happened to Chamberlain after Munich? Where was he? Was he, he, he went on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. Balcony of Buckingham Palace. Mm. No. And the monarchy was at the, and in that sense, you know, the Queen's terror of involvement has been part of this distancing process. And if we again look at the, we, 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 we look at um, the, all, all those endless charities, the idea of the monarchy as patron of charitable activity, well, it partly is medieval, um, uh, particularly the role of the queen, uh, the only uh, queen consort, the, the area of her freedom of action was religion. 
and was beneficence to royal houses, to, I mean, religious houses, nunneries, and that kind of thing. And then you get um, the shift from religious patronage with the Reformation to the notion of a charity, which is invented in the, in the very end of the reign of Elizabeth I. But it becomes very closely associated with monarchy in the 18th century. If you go and look at, um, at the Great Hall of St. Bart's Hospital, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful 18th century interior, you'll see it's very American. It's complete notes of blogs gave £10 a year and you know, in the presence of Princess so-and-so and so-and-so. And it's the mixture of, of, of the royal and commercial. Mm. And this was explicitly endorsed as such by Beatrice Webb, of all people. She saw, uh, alongside her Fabian socialism, the monarch or the Prince of Wales, uh, and she puts it as head of society. Mm and the head of the voluntary sector. And then an idea is developed by Frank Prohaska uh, in, in, in his book, Royal Bounty and all the rest of it. But it was done in a very active way. What we forget is the role of something that we don't think of as being serious at all, but he had serious aspects. Edward VII, when he was Prince of Wales, he's responsible for the King's Fund um, and he had uh, the royal court then uh, wasn't just a collection of old duffer dukes and people interested in horse racing. There were duffer dukes and people interested in horse racing. But his court was filled with the richest people in the city. Mm. People like Werner and all the rest of it. And he taps them for vast sums for the charity of London hospitals. And he creates a charitable fund which effectively runs the major London hospitals, all marginalised, of course, mm. by the invention of the NHS. Mm. But if, if these charities are to mean anything, they've got to be much more directly involved with the actual interests of the monarch. I mean, Charles has sketched some of this, um, uh, but, but has been very hesitant about, as it were, some way telling people what he's actually doing. Um, uh, and what the Queen has done instead, of course, is you know, be pa absolutely passionate about horse racing. Bizarre, elitist things that you have to be very rich and also lead you into close relations with undesirable princes from the Gulf. Um, let's be truthful. Mm -hmm. And the Duke of Edinburgh. I mean, carriage driving. Can you imagine a more grotesquely extravagant elitist? One of those carriages must cost a quarter of a million. It can't be anything less. It's a hand-built thing. You need a stable. To do a four in hand, four horses, how many, what size of a stable do you need? You know, uh, in that sense, Prince William, I couldn't give a damn about football, but he clearly does. Rather good thing. BAFTA, well, we all know about BAFTA. Um, but, but the patronages need to be enormously cut down, but they also they, they, they need to be an expression of real involvement and real commitment. You look at the number of institutions that have the word royal in their title. They have it because once somebody was actually interested, you no longer have any sense. The way in which the royal family has completely abandoned the academic sector. Um, even when I was a young man, 
Uh, Prince Philip was the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was the Vice-Chancellor of London. I remember when I got, got my first, now of course removed, honorary degree at the University of, Alex of, of, of Lancaster. The only thing I remember about a deeply shabby and dreary service um, uh, ceremony uh, was, was the grace and elegance of Princess Alexandra as the Chancellor of the University. Um, but that's all gone. Again, it, George III founds the Regius Chairs. Um, Gordon Brown effectively abolishes them and gives the patronage back to each university. And no one's ever heard of a Regius professor since because it's a, the usual academic back scratching. Mm. Um, there's a, if you look at the way in which the universities have gone off into this weird silo, to use a fashionable word, they desperately need pulling back. And, but it, requir it requires daring to do what the Queen hasn't. There's got to be commitment. There's also a problem, isn't there? And we're drawing towards a close now. But there's a problem, isn't there? The, um, the, the number of senior roles who are going to be available for these positions are getting smaller. Harry is, is effectively out of the game. Uh, there's William. There's only so much he can do. And, and, and there's Charles. Um, Anne's children are doing their own things and, and so on and so forth. So uh, are there really the personnel in, in, in the core of the royal family? Well, in to, well to, does to, it necessarily to do have this? to be the core? That is Prince Charles's view, I think, largely to make sure that he can, get, get, can park um, the Duke of York um, um, uh, at the top of the hill and leave him there. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but naming names... Uh, the Duke of Gloucester is an eminently intelligent, civilised man with serious professional qualifications. I've been astonished at his ability uh, to produce an ex a really superb extempore speech mm. after a complex evening, um, seriously interested in history. Um, in other words, what I think you've got to do is you've got, but what I'm really saying is they've got to start to ask the fundamental question, what is monarchy for? What bits of British society does it wish to connect with? Um, because at the moment it is retreating increasingly to the margins. Uh, they've got to ask what really is the point? of a royal turning up once every four years to an organisation. Why? It may be desperately important from the point of view of the organisation, i.e. fundraising, but what relevance is that to the monarchy? There need to be... And again, there needs to be a sense of big questions being asked. And again, to go back, to go back to 1917, 1917 was a moment of, in fact, that whole period, the first two decades of the 20th century. Remember, Britain was not a democracy. It had been a great aristocratic and plutocratic society. It's undergoing convulsive political change. There is the example of what that convulsive political change did elsewhere in Europe, which is to destroy everything. The senior politicians then I've described, the roles of, a, of an Asquith or the roles of a Rosebery and whatever, are profound, even, even the David Lloyd George, they are profoundly aware of the need to tame the horses. Uh, and they did it. But they were involved, it was involvement at the highest level. It wasn't just a royal cabal. 
It wasn't a handful of, on the whole, I'm afraid, I think now deeply unimpressive courtiers. I mean, one of the great problems with the Queen is that there's never been a really heavyweight private secretary. If you look at the private secretaries of Victoria, of Edward VII, and of George V, these are people who are at least on a level with the greatest of the politicians. And they serve for very long periods of time, but also the political class was fundamentally committed to the monarchy. And, but it wasn't, it was, this doesn't mean that it was in the least supine. It wasn't, in that sense, reverential. Um, they were willing to think from scratch. People like, like Reginald Brett, Viscount Isha, or even, you know, George Nathaniel Curzon, I'm a very important person. And he is at the heart of that process of reinvention in 1917. But I don't see much sign of that now. Because, of course, our whole political process is arguably undergoing an identical process of hollowing out. The processes of parliament, of the law. The only, the only one of our old, the Church of England above all, the only one of our old institutions, and it's again, let's go back and conclude perhaps, uh, with, with Philip's funeral service, are the armed forces. And even there, it's hanging on by a whisker. We need this sort The British state is an old state. It's been an immensely successful state. But it's been successful because it was capable of serious reinvention. We're clearly at one of those moments again. And the alarming thing is that the fading of a, of a regime, of the Queen, may coincide with a period of violent, political change, dissolution of the union and all the rest of it, in which there are no individuals who seem to grasp the scale of the problem or have any notion of how to work to a solution. Well, Professor David Starkey, with that rather stark question begging to be answered, thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.